We are in our study uh, continuing in Acts. Um, this week we take chapter 18. And uh, I lead off with the handout here showing you a map that zooms in on Athens on the east side of the square and Corinth on the left. Because you can see in Acts 18 verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Right? There's a number of questions that come up here, and I'm because we're going to, after this session, the next time that I'm here teaching, we will dive into 1 Corinthians itself, and we'll get into a lot of the background of the city of Corinth, but for now I just want to give a, a, a taste of it, rather than dive deep, because I'd rather finish the chapter of 18 here first. The distance between Athens and Corinth, as you see on the map, is approximately 50 miles. We're not used to seeing the map zoomed in quite so much, so you have this idea that this is a really big distance, but it really isn't. Um, what's 50 miles south of here? Nothing. Casa Grande. Casa Grande. Okay, Casa Grande. <laughs> so it would be the distance, a walking distance from here to Casa Grande. Now, you wouldn't want to do that tomorrow afternoon unless you took a lot of water and then a big umbrella and all sorts of other reasons. But, and it isn't a flat surface. This isn't a day walk. This is probably going to take three days maybe because it's rather mountainous in that region. I had a couple questions which are completely unanswered about in the, in the scriptures. Why did Paul leave Athens in the first place? I mean, when we were looking at this last week, it was his sermon on Mars Hill, and he had some results. There was the, um, let's see, end of 17, Dion Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. And uh, according to history, Dionysius became the bishop of Athens in the early church. So it's not like there was no success. But you have him leaving. We're not even quite sure how long he was in Athens, for that matter. Uh, Luke is very um, absent with that detail. Now there's some who think that um, Paul might have been sick. And Athens only has about 20,000 people in it. Corinth is the capital of Achaia, the, uh, the area of southern Greece. Could it be that there were physicians there? Could it be that there was possible healing or whatever opportunity for him? We don't know. Um, one of the reasons that is brought up is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing except among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So was there persecution that drove him out of Athens? Well, everywhere else he went, he ended up getting kicked out of town and run out of town possible that also followed him here. But looking at the map of this, this area, there's a couple things that 
don't show on the map that are there just for your uh, tickles and grins. If you see how I'm holding up the map, right up the upper left-hand corner, the upper west nor uh, northwest side, right above, right outside the box is the city of Delphi. And you've heard of the Oracle of Delphi and other, you know, uh, religious-centered things for Greece was right across the bay. Then at the bottom, the south uh, west side, you don't see it because the island continues, the peninsula continues out, and it is the peninsula that is called Peloponnesus. We heard the Peloponnesian War, and this is where the Spartans lived. So you have a region of Corinth, though its geographic location is that if you're crossing the Mediterranean to come to Greece, you're going to land at that southern part of the island near Sparta. And if you want to go up into the rest of the Asia or the Greece area, you have to go through Corinth. Why? Look very carefully at your map. Right above the city of Kentrea uh, that you see there. See that isthmus? That tiny little land bridge? It's only three miles wide. Only three miles wide. Now they don't have it on this map, but there is actually a port on the northern side of that little inlet. That water goes all the way out to the sea. So coming from Rome, if you didn't go by land over the Appian Way, you could come down and hit this port. But if you wanted to continue, you had to cross that isthmus. They actually have found ancient roads with the pavement in them across this isthmus wide enough that sometimes the boats would land on the northern side or the southern side. They would unload it onto, you know, semi-trucks, <laughs> uh, onto wagons, cart it across, and then reload it on the other side on a new boat. Then some enterprising fellows thought, well, that's silly. Why don't we just transport the boat? And they literally pulled the boat up on logs and rolled it. You know, you take, you roll it until the back log falls out and you put that one in the front and you rolled it for three miles and then set it back in the water. Well, going back to Julius Caesar's time, when Julius Caesar came into this region as a conqueror, um, he wanted Corinth to be rebuilt. It had been abandoned, which we'll get into more detail later. He looked at that isthmus and goes, we need to build a canal here. This is silly. And everyone goes, well, that's a great idea, Mr. Caesar. Um, who's going to pay for it? He goes, ah, well, it's something we'll, we'll think about. Of course, he got distracted and started doing other things. Caligula, Emperor Caligula, came to Greece, came to that isthmus and went, we need to build a canal here. And I went, yes, oh great Caesar, that's a great idea. So give us the engineers, give us the, and he said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put that on the table to uh, discuss. Nothing ever happened. Emperor Nero came along and went, we need to build a canal here. 
And everyone goes, oh yes, great, Caesar, wrote, Caesar Nero, you're right. And so, Nero actually did something about it. He used 6,000 conscripted Jewish slaves and began digging a canal. They got so far that on one of the walls of the canal, they actually, there's a relief carved into the limestone there of Hercules. And that is still there today. But of course, Nero didn't last long, so the money dried up and all the other things went away. It wasn't until 1893, 1830 years later, the Greek people decided, we need to build a canal here. So they did. Now think about the timing. That's right about the time of the building of the Panama Canal. So the idea and the ability for man to build canals, the technology had grown, the thinking about it and all of that, they put it all together, and so they dug a three-mile wide canal. Now, it's interesting, just a little side note, I've told you that I went to this area of the world when I was a 19-year-old, part of a college trip, and we were staying in Athens, and it was a day trip to go to Corinth. You know, 50 miles in a bus, it's take you an hour. We had to go over this bridge over a canal. So we stop, we all get out. I even have a little picture of the canal. And I'm sitting there going, why are we looking at this? What is the big deal? I still, in my youth, remember standing on that, looking down that way, and whoop, little canal, water, little canal, water, big hairy deal. You know, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get back on the bus and let's go to Corinth. Not thinking of the engineering miracle that that was in 1893. Problem is, they didn't use locks. So you have the tidal forces of the northern sea and the tidal forces of the southern sea warring with each other inside the canal. Also inside the canal, it's limestone rock. Limestone is the weakest of all rocks. So there were constant landslides. And the wake of passing boats would eat away at the limestone, which caused more problems. So they were constantly having to either close one end or the other, dig out the limestone. It was a, a continual engineering nightmare. In, let's see if I got this right. That's right, it was World War I. It got damaged terribly during the war. Um, so they closed both ends and fixed it. World War II, if you ever want to read a fascinating little intrigue story, is the battle for the Corinthian Canal between the British soldiers and the retreating German soldiers. There was that bridge I talked about, it's not the same one obviously, from World War II, that the only way across that canal is that bridge. And it's one bridge. If that goes, doggone it, the only way to get our tanks is to put them on boats and put them about, it slows everything down. So the German soldiers wired the bridge to, to blow it up. 
they forgot to light the fuse when they left. <laughs> Pretty much. They were, in other words, they ran out before they could blow it up. So the British had control of the bridge. The Germans, in a late night raid using gliders, came in with special forces and took the bridge back and blew it up. I mean, just like, oh, that's a movie. I want to watch that movie. That would be really fascinating. Just the whole drama of that because it changed the course of the, um, the British troops coming up through Greece to attack the southern part of Europe. Well, the main problem with that canal is they didn't build it big enough. Not wide enough. It's only 60 feet wide. So think of our room here. These panels are what? Four feet? So one, two, three. That's 12. So imagine a canal maybe three times as wide. That's it. You're not going to be able to put a Panama Canal maximum size boat in there. It can't draft enough for one thing, the water isn't deep enough, and it's not wide enough. Now in 1893 that was fine. They didn't have the Panama Canal. They didn't build boats that big. They didn't have the semi-truck storage things to ship containers all over the world. Um, but because of the problems of World War II, the Germans also blew up one end of the canal and blew up the other end of the canal, and it was useless. In 1946 and 47, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers went in and dug it all out and reopened it. And that's what we have today. The only people who use it are tourists. <laughs> it has no commercial value because the boats are too small. And it's one way. They didn't build two canals, one going one way and one going the other. So if there's a boat in there, everything else has to stop. Well, until that one finally goes through and then the next one comes out. Can you imagine how slow and how aggravating that is? Plus, with that kind of limited traffic, you can't charge enough to pay for the upkeep and the maintenance. So they can charge the tourists and the tourists are happy to pay it so they can go travel in a ditch. I mean, seriously, that's what it is. It's a very deep ditch. The other problem was because it's so deep and the wall's so high, it creates a wind tunnel. So when those storms build up, 50, 60, 70 mile an hour winds come barreling down that canal. It's like, again, the engineers didn't quite think it through when they built this thing a hundred and some odd years ago. So that's my trivia for the Corinthian Canal. <laughs> Has absolutely nothing to do with scripture, but I found it absolutely fascinating to think it goes all the way back to Julius Caesar, all the way back to Nero, thinking we have a logistical problem here and we need to be able to you know, move our commerce around easily and they had the idea they just didn't have the money or the willpower or the longevity to make it happen. Meanwhile, you look at the map again and you look at Kentrea. That is the southern port, and that is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. We'll get to that in a minute uh, when you look at it. Corinth itself, um, um, 
200,000 people, as I mentioned, approximately, at the time of Paul. Today, there's less than 60,000 people in Corinth. As a city, it has no real value. I do remember standing in the ruins of, of ancient Corinth, and it struck me, even back then, and I, it was one of those questions I never bothered to answer until my study this week. Because I kept thinking, why is this ancient city empty and there's nobody living here at all? Ancient Corinth is a ghost town with just ruins in it. You go to Athens and yeah, you've got the Parthenon and Mars Hill and all that, but it's surrounded by millions of people crowded around the city. It's still there, but Corinth isn't. And it never, you know, it was one of those questions in the back of the head, so I'm looking it up this week, and I found out that in 1858, they estimate that a 6.5 earthquake, does that sound familiar, that number? A 6.5 earthquake hit Corinth and destroyed it, leveled it completely, made it unlivable. So... The city father said, well, rather than rebuild here among all these ruins, let's just move the city. And so they did. Now, when we were in ancient Corinth, we never saw new Corinth. It would be like Phoenix being destroyed, and then the city fathers decided to move to Cave Creek. You could be standing in downtown Phoenix and not have any idea that there's a city up in Cave Creek. You'd have no idea at all. It's up over a hill and around the way and you don't see it so because you don't see it it must not exist because um, we all know that that's a principle of science um, <laughs> anyway so they rebuilt the city 1858 then in 1928 right before Black Friday in America which was 1929 in 1928 a 6.3 earthquake hit New Corinth and destroyed it. So the city father said, well, rather than move it again, let's just rebuild it. So they did. And five years later, the great fire of Corinth destroyed most of the city. Sounds familiar. The city of Chicago and their great fire destroyed a bulk of the downtown area. And they rebuilt it again. And what we have today is what it was completely rebuilt. But it's off the Corinthian way. So it begs the question, why was Corinth placed here in the first place? Much like Athens had an Acropolis where they built the great temple to Athena. Corinth, and I'll be showing you pictures in three weeks when I return to teach, um, has an Acropolis, 1,800 feet high. And on top of that is the temple to Aphrodite and was the most dominant um, religion and following in that city. To give a scale, Camelback Mountain is 2,700 feet high. I looked it up. So imagine something just a little bit, you know, chop off the head of Camelback Mountain and you've got, you know, maybe the hump and you've got the Acropolis of Corinth. It would feel like that and you would look up there and if the great temple to, you know, the government was sitting at the top of that hill and we would all turn our eyes to the east and worship every morning. 
that's what it was like in Corinth at the time. So that's my little bit of background on Corinth. It was a debauched city. We know that from our study of 1 Corinthians, and we will get more into that later. So we go back to verse 1. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He went there alone. Silas and Timothy were not with him, most likely at this time. There's a lot of questions because we have in verse 5 of this passage, you can see it right there in your handout, that Silas and Timothy come to him in Corinth. When we left Paul in Athens the last time, he had been chased out of Berea alone and had sent instructions, have Timothy and Silas join me here in Athens. So if Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, how would Timothy and Silas know where to find him? They didn't have a GPS locator on their phone. They didn't have text messages. They didn't have a way to communicate that easily. The theory is, is that Timothy and Silas did join Paul in Athens. And when they arrived, Paul said, Timothy, go back to Thessalonica and find out what's going on in the church there. I'm very concerned about them. Because how would he have known to go to Thessalonica and get a report unless Paul had told him? And the same with Silas. I want you to go to Philippi and go back to the church there and find out how things are going and then join me in Corinth. Now that's one theory. There's lots of various theories. It makes sense in my mind, so it must make sense in yours. Um, so he arrives in Athens, weakened. We don't know if this is just spiritually, um, physically, we're not sure. But he comes into Corinth, and it says, verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Oh, there's so much fun historical stuff in that sentence. I just, this is just great. So, he meets a Jew named Aquila. We know of Priscilla and Aquila. We read about them many times. And notice how I just said it. I gave her name first. When they're introduced, it's Aquila and Priscilla. They are mentioned seven times in the New Testament by Paul. Four of them, it's listed as Priscilla and Aquila. And the other three are Aquila and Priscilla. The flip-flop. Now that's unusual in this culture. Remember, you know, very patriarchal. So you have, why is Priscilla named first? Four times. It's very interesting. No one really knows why. A lot of wonderful theories out there. But it says that Aquila is a native of Pontus. Pontus is on the Black Sea. So he's near Turkey. That's the area or region he came from. But he and his wife Priscilla have emigrated to Rome, which is where they had set up shop. We find out in the next verse, verse 3, that they're tent makers. But they were chased out of Rome 
by Emperor Claudius, who is, by the way, still on the throne right now in our chronology. We know that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome because that is was mentioned in our study in Acts when Paul and Silas were in Philippi. And when they came to Philippi, which was a... Um, it's my word here. It's not a province, but it was a Roman colony. That's right. It was a Roman colony governed by Rome. So if Rome said do something, Philippi did it too. And they most likely kicked most of the Jews out of Philippi at the time Paul and Silas arrived. Because remember when he arrived, there was no synagogue. And to have a synagogue meant you had to have ten Jewish men and then you could create, call it, create a synagogue, which meant there weren't enough to create one. So where did Paul go? Do you remember? He went to the river and met with the women. And that's where he met Lydia. And the church began through Lydia and her household. Here we are in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And I looked this up. I just thought this was, there was another wonderful trivia things of history. We know when that happened. Happened in 49 AD. So in 49 AD, we have Claudius doing his dirty deed with the Jews. Well, why did he do it? Was he just an anti-Semite? No. There were riots being fomented by the Jews in Rome, and he was tired of it, so he kicked 20,000 of them out of the city. 20,000! That's a lot of people. That would be the entire population of Athens, for example. But a Roman historian, approximately 125 AD, so 70 years later, a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, he wrote, quote, well, first I'll give the paraphrase, Claudius kicked the Jews out because, quote, Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation, at the instigation of Crestos or Crestus. So is Crestus a person? Who was this Crestus? Well, the word Crestos means useful. A useful one. So Crestos was the name for slaves. And what would happen if we changed one more letter? Christos, Christ. Could it be? We don't know. Complete conjecture, but it's interesting to think about that Suetonius, 70 years later, may have just heard and spelled it phonetically. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe, he, maybe it was because of a, the followers of Christos, the Jewish church in Rome, 
of which Priscilla and Aquila were a part of. Priscilla and Aquila left Rome 4950 49, AD, or B, yeah, AD. They come, set up shop in, in Corinth. Paul comes to Corinth and he needs a job. He needs to have a way to earn a living so he's not, you know, doing handouts with the people he's talking to because he's trying to witness to people. He's trying to convert people. He's not there just trying to whip up support. <clears throat> so he works as a tent maker. Now there's some controversy about the word tent maker that it also could mean leather maker because um, there's question on the majority of tents at the time were built were made out of goat skin and a devout Jew probably wouldn't mess with that as much who knows we don't we're not sure but the bottom line is he goes looking for a job he was getting unemployment and the government said you gotta you know fill out the form every week uh, so he goes and he finds now there's another theory is that he met Priscilla, actually he met Aquila at the synagogue where he went to speak. And there is another theory, I run into all these theories, but they're just interesting, is that many times, and we, we'll even find this in our own church sometimes, you will find someone who works in your profession and you go sit with them. And could it be you had the tent makers over here at the bankers over here and, and they you know they have a common connection in their daily job and so Paul meets Aquila and says you know I'm looking for work and he goes you any good at what you do? Well, Jesus thinks I am <laughs> here's my resume <laughs> and he goes and he works with Priscilla and Aquila he went to see them verse 3 and because he was of the same trade he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Now, I have a complete, I have one more rabbit trail side note, and this goes back to Tom and my conversation last week, as what happens when two Bible teachers sit in a corner and begin talking. We begin talking questions about scripture that are, we're just kind of curious. And I had asked the question, every letter of Paul is written to a church that he had either founded or had visited, except for one. Which one is that? Rome. Rome. Why in the world did he write this massive tome to people he had never met? It just, it was one of those questions I was, and Tom and I were kind of exploring that a little bit and going, well, I, that's an interesting question. Why? And of all the letters, it wasn't a hello, you know, hope you're doing well. It was a theological handbook. Most likely, it's because of his relationship with Priscilla and Aquila. They came from that church. They knew the problems in that church. They may have been part of the founding of that church for all we know. We do know that in Pentecost, when the Spirit descended on all the people in the area and they all began speaking in their own languages, one of the places mentioned is Rome, which meant there were Roman converts from Rome at Pentecost who went home 
and may have established the church back then. Who knows how strong it was, how much it grew. And we follow Priscilla and Aquila with Paul, because after he left Corinth, they go to Ephesus, and they're with him. The next time we see Priscilla and Aquila after Paul has left Ephesus, is they're in Rome again. Because in Romans chapter 16, and he has that long list of all the people he's thanking, you know, his acknowledgments. In, uh, let's see, 16.3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. At the last part of the book of Romans. So he wrote to Rome. That's to answer our little question. Because he knew some of the people there and knew the problems and knew the challenges they had and they may have felt they needed or maybe requested, can you give us a, a um, extensive explanation of the theology of the faith? Because our teachers are lacking. There's something we haven't figured out yet. And there's a lot of controversy. Can you help us set the record straight of what the scripture says? Who knows? That's a possibility. Um, anyway, so rabbit trail's done. We're back on our track here. Verse 4. And Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks or the God-fearers who were in the synagogue. Now this suggests he went there every Saturday when they were gathered. And the rest of the day he worked. It's just, we don't have the same situation we saw in Athens, where he was down in the marketplace and he was at the synagogue, but now he's working while he is also preaching. Now, J.C. Ryle, a great uh, writer from from Britain in the uh, 1800s, wrote this about a Christian zealot, someone who has zeal for Christ. And I'm going to read this to you because he's not, he didn't write this about Paul, but it could have been. And this is one of those admonitions that I read it and went, oh, wow, yeah, I kind of fall down on this one. So get ready to be convicted. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, through-going, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Wherever he lives, or whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. Is he, if he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp, he is made to burn. 
And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God has appointed him. And that is what I mean when I speak of zeal. When you think about Paul, he was single-minded. Nothing else mattered. You know, I was concerned about the Phoenix Suns trades during the free agent state signing. So my zeal is kind of misaligned. You know, uh, I'll bet some of us, if we were to sit there and examine ourselves, would think, uh, that doesn't describe me very well. You might say, well, I'm not Paul. But we can be. We are called to be. So, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, which is what I alluded to earlier, so now Paul's no longer alone, it says, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that Christ was Jesus. Now we have to stop here a second, kind of unravel this a little bit. You remember that Timothy was sent to Thessalonica, he brought back the report, and Paul wrote the letters to the Thessalonians from Corinth, right about this time. And we studied, we did our study of all the, the text of both letters to the Thessalonians. But Silas, we know that Silas brought money from Philippi. It doesn't say it here. It says it in two other places. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, it reads, And when I was with you, he's writing to the Corinthians, and I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he writes to the Philippian church, Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves knew that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership in, with me in giving and receiving except you only. The suggestion here, and if we look at the text carefully, when Silas arrived with the gift from the church in Philippi, Paul no longer had to work. This is the meaning of the phrase in the ESV, Paul was occupied with the word. The NIV reads, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Now that's a little bit of an um, interpretation. Uh, the New English translation, the NET, says that Paul was wholly absorbed in the word. The Greek literally reads, Paul held himself to the word. This idea that he, had, he was released from having to spend his time making tents and he could devote himself 100% of the time to the word and to his preaching. Now, as you can imagine, in the various sermons that I either read or listened to, many of the pastors went, ooh, I like this verse. <laughs> you know, 
pay me <laughs> so I don't have to do have a second job. And yet at the same time, it creates the controversy then for uh, the pastors that are vocational pastors who have a job and then also preach on you know, the, and, and the, which is right, there's no right or wrong here. That's my point. I mean, I was actually seeing people condemning those that were vocational, saying you don't have enough faith. Like, come on, that's just not right. And then yet at the same time, you have this challenge, you want to make your pastoral staff such that they don't have to worry about making their next payment. Because that worry, for those of us who worry about that, and there's many of us of it that do, it can overwhelm you and it becomes the only thing you think about. You then become wholly absorbed in your next paycheck, not wholly absorbed in the Word. So that is where that verse is going. It's, you have to kind of look under and behind the words to realize what's going on. This is a a change in what Paul was dealing with when he was in Corinth. And then verse 6, and when they, the Jews, opposed, which is a military word meaning to draw up battle array for mortal conflict. This was not just, oh, we don't like you. They were adamant. They were in his face. When they opposed and reviled him, the Greek word for reviled is blasphemeo. They blasphemed him to speak harm. Paul shook his garments. Can you imagine? You know, I'm shaking the dust off my, you know, go away from me. That was not an unusual thing to do. We saw Paul do that in Acts chapter 13 with the people in Antioch, Pisidia. When they came and were reviling him, the Jews were attacking him, he said, I'm shaking the dust off my feet. I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. At least they're listening. And he says the same thing here. He says, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. I'll now go and talk to the Gentiles. We have a similar action of this. Find it. Oh goodness. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, finding Nehemiah is always a challenge. Ezra Nehemiah. Nehemiah in chapter five, verse thirteen. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. He was fighting the, those that were fighting him for rebuilding the temple, or rebuilding the walls of the city. Verse seven, and he left there and went next door. Yeah, that's what it means. He's in the synagogue having these conversations with the Jews. They get in his face. They are reviling him. They're blaspheming. He shakes out his garments with the dust, walks out, 
and goes to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> he just walked out, went down, a, you know, 30 feet and went, hey, I'm here, let's have lunch. Um, we don't know who Titius Justus is. However, we do know he's a Gentile, just by his name. That's a very Roman name. It is possible, this is one of those other trivia theories about the New Testament, it is possible he was also known as Gaius. Gaius Titius Justus. A lot of Roman, Roman people had three names. And Gaius Titius Justus, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, let me read it. Uh, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So could it be that Gaius was this fellow who housed and, you know, was with Paul at this time because Crispus is in the next verse. Now, I really, really want to talk to the people who set up the paragraphs in our Bibles. This should be a new paragraph right here. To me, this is a new thought because Crispus coming to Jesus is amazing. Crispus was what? What does it say? He's the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, that's like the Pope of the synagogue. He's the guy. He's the one everyone turns to when they have a question on the management and the, the, the organization of it. Doesn't mean he's the rabbi, necessarily, but he's a very powerful person in the organization and the running of the synagogue. And he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. That's why I say, I think that is the new paragraph. Because that's a big deal. In the very next sentence, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. We have a revival starting here. Things are beginning to burble up. Things are beginning to happen in, in a way that we've not really seen before. Of course, we've only seen six verses for right now in Corinthians. We do know that Crispus and Titius Justus were not the first converts in Corinth because... In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, Paul writes, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the servants of the saints. So either we have Stephanus in Athens, or Stephanus in Corinth, most likely it was in Corinth, where we find him. No. That's Titius Justus. Oh, okay. This is Crispus. Crispus is a different guy. Oh, okay. okay. But, despite all that, we have these next two, two or three verses here. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Well, that suggests Paul was afraid. He wouldn't need the comfort of the Lord with those words if there wasn't something bothering 
Paul to the point that God visited him in the night. Now, there's a lot of discussion about depression and uh, difficulties in ministry. There's even a book out called Spurgeon's Sorrows. It is really amazing because that book unveils from all of his sermon material and all of his writings the many, many times that Spurgeon talked about his own depression and how difficult and how, uh, how Satan was using that on him and oppressing him constantly. I mean, if you remember when Spurgeon was about 22 years old and he had this massive megachurch and someone shouted fire one morning and it was a stampede and I think it was a dozen people were killed right in front of him. That's going to affect you as a pastor. This is just this, this idea that uh, we, we uphold our pastors that they, they're always perfect, they're always happy, they can never be grumpy, they can never have a bad day. You know, they are Christ incarnate. Uh, they're human beings and they have their ups and downs and their difficulties. So for the Lord to come to Paul and say, do not be afraid and keep speaking and don't be silent. Does that mean that he was feeling like it's not working? And yeah, we just have this litany of good things going on, but there's been struggles and the Jews are after him. They're opposing him. They're blaspheming him. They're reviling him. And this is what's interesting. We did our study of second, first and second Thessalonians. You go to Second Thessalonians chapter three, and Paul writes to them from Corinth, which means right around this time, he's writing to the Thessalonians and says, "Pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored." and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. He's asking for his brothers in Thessalonica to pray for him because he's feeling the pressure and the anger and the evil that's coming at him. At that time, he he asks for help from his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. God comes to him and says, Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. G. Campbell Morgan was reading this passage to a couple of seniors at a rest home. And he said to them, Isn't that an amazing promise? And one of the ladies popped up and went, No. It's a certainty. It's not a promise. It's happened. And it is happening. We need to be careful when we look at that, because I even had written it in my notes. This is an amazing promise! Exclamation point. And then I read that story about G. Campbell Morgan, and I crossed out the, what a promise. No, it's what a certainty. This is an absolute fact. God is with us no matter the circumstances. Kent Hughes wrote it this way. The Lord says to us, do not be afraid. Stop borrowing trouble. Look at me. I love you. Keep ministering. Keep caring. Keep speaking my name. 
inactivity will only imprison you in your fears. Believe that I am with you and that I'll give you all the protection you need. Believe that your life will bear fruit. I promise you. And then he gave the illustration of Leonidas, the Spartan hero, battling the Persians. And one of his soldiers said, General, when the Persians shoot their arrows, there are so many of them, they darken the sky. And Leonidas says, then we will fight in the shade. When the arrows are such, coming out of Sotho, that just darkens the sky, you just have to believe. God is with us. No matter what. He says, he says to Paul, no one will attack you or do harm to you. I have many in this city who are my people. He wakes up, and it says here, he stayed in Corinth for 18 months, which is the longest time by a great margin that he stayed in any city. He'd been drummed out of places in three weeks before. Here, he stays for a year and a half before he felt he should leave. I knew I was gonna run out of time. Shoot. Um, Got some really good stuff here, which we will then have to return to um, because this next section is really critical in the history of the early church. Really critical. So we'll do that when I return in a few weeks and um, start our study of the Corinthian letters. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. I really, really pray constantly to remember that you are with me and with us. Life can get really tough sometimes. <clears throat> and as uh, Ken Hughes put it, we borrow trouble because we focus on the negative. And I am probably the chief of sinners in that regard. Lord, help us. Even Paul, in his darkest days, reaches out and asks for prayer. And he believed the answer when it came. I am with you no matter what. If we can believe that and trust in that, we, like Paul, can continue and continue to minister in a way that only in His power and in Your glory can we do so. We pray this in Your name. Amen.